Hey everyone, it's Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 14 of Yoga Land. So today on the show, my guest is my husband, Jason Crandall. When I asked Jason what he wanted to talk about this week, he said, without hesitation, home practice. And that's for a few reasons. First of all, Jason has been incredibly devoted to his own home practice for a long time and finds a lot of personal benefit to it. And perhaps more importantly, Jason feels it's essential for anyone teaching yoga to develop a home practice. So we talked about that. We talked about where to begin if you don't know where to begin with your home practice, if you're just sitting on your mat feeling like you really want someone to lead you through it. And we also talked about how your yoga practice changes when you become a teacher and how a home practice can become kind of a respite from the grind of a full-time teaching career. And we wrap up the show with some inspiration that Jason and I provide online, both for your home practice and for your sequencing for your teaching. So here we go. Enjoy this week's episode. Okay, so today we're going to talk about becoming a teacher and how your relationship to practice changes when you become a teacher. Yeah. So where would you like to start with that? I think the place that I want to start is acknowledging the inevitability of change and knowing that as yoga practitioners, that when we become yoga teachers, our relationship to our practice and what we experience when we practice and sort of the inner dynamics of our practice are going to change. And we have to not be taken aback by that. We have to go into a teacher training program or go into a career as a teacher, knowing that our experience of our own practice is going to shift. Because if we don't know that it's going to change and it does change, then we're not going to be prepared for it. And we may not know how to adapt to the experience of our practice changing. Can you remember when you first started teaching, what was perhaps the most surprising or not even surprising, but just what felt the most different? Well, I think that the big change for me, because I was of a generation where I started teaching before I did a teacher training. So early on when I started teaching, my practice didn't really change that much because I was both an Ashtanga yoga practitioner and teacher. And I was asked to teach at the behest of my teacher at the time. And so I still was doing a primary series practice. I still was going to group classes. I wasn't really doing anything on my own. And so when I started, when I started teaching, I didn't, I didn't have much of a change because I was still, even though I became a teacher, I was still almost invariably doing public classes. When it really changed for me was in 2000 when I started Rodney and Richard Rosen and Mary Buffard and Patricia Sullivan's teacher training program in Oakland at Piedmont Yoga Studio. And I remember seeing a handout of requirements on our first day that we had a two-hour daily home practice. Wow. Plus a 30-minute pranayama practice. Oh, that's so And this was a two-year program. So two years of every day, two-hour practice, 30-minute pranayama. And that was in addition to the training. That wasn't the training. And that so you was took the a daily vow of poverty. Home. <laughs> yeah, you had no time yeah, to yeah. work. 
<laughs> yeah, well, let's just say, um, let's just say I, I didn't lean. exactly show up those, for every practice every time. Those were lean years, right? Those were very lean years. <laughs> so that's to me is when the discipline changed. And at that phase, getting back to your question, the main thing that I remember is not knowing what to do. Right. Not really having any clue what mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I sort of liken it sometimes to when I got my driver's license. You know, I had always been in a car. I had always been being driven from place to place. But I realized I didn't know the names of any of the streets. I knew how to get from point A to point B, but I actually didn't know anything about the roads, anything about the names, anything, any of those details, because I hadn't had to learn them because I was being transported. Right. But when that shifted and and I became the driver, I needed to learn a greater degree of detail, but it was, it was a pretty overwhelming phase for me. Just to back up a little bit, it sounds like one of the big changes when you become a teacher is that you're required really to do a home practice. You were required to do a home practice. I think in an should, ideal world. I think you should be required to do a home practice. Mm-hmm. I think that that's where you go from being fed by a chef to cooking your own food. Mm. I don't want to be overly judgmental about it, just a little bit judgmental about it. But I sort of feel like how as a teacher can we expect ourselves to skillfully lead someone else? through a 60 minute or a 90 minute practice. If we can't lead our own self through a 60 minute or a 90 minute practice, you know, how can you teach the piano if you don't play piano, you know? And and so I I think that this is a, this is a place in modern era of yoga where, where maybe we need to recommit to the discipline of personal practice. Mm -hmm. But we also have to know that when we do our personal practice as a teacher, we're going to have a little bit of teacher brain when we are doing our practice. When I am doing my practice, it's not just me in my head. It's me thinking about my class. It's me thinking about my students. It's me thinking about, you know, every aspect of my job, every aspect of my career comes up when I am doing my practice. And in that way, it's not quite as pure or free as maybe it could be, as if it were just my own pure escape. It's not a retreat for me. Mm-hmm. It's R&D. It's research and development. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of your job. I mean, it's like when I have an interview, I spend time reading and, you know, reading books and reading essays and reading things about people. And I like to read on the side for fun, but that's not what that is. I mean, right. that is preparing myself right. for my job. So Right. Okay. Right. So there's a bit of a paradox, both for me and I think a lot of people that teach and and actually do have a committed home practice is that when I do my home practice, it's not, it's not a pure escape at the same time, because it is my job. And because I do take my job very seriously and because I am highly committed to being an educator, I feel more beholden to having a home practice than if it were just an escape. If it were just an escape for me, then I might more easily blow it off. Mm-hmm. Whereas because it's not just for me, mm-hmm. but because it is what anchors my teaching profession, I'm that much more accountable for it and accountable to it. Right. Yeah. So it works both ways. 
Right. And so it can also be like those aspects that everyone has in their job where maybe it's not, it's not every day that you show up to your, your work and, or at least I'll, I'll just use myself for example. It was not every day that I showed up to yoga journal and was, and thought to myself, Oh yay, I have another 3000 words to edit today and it's due in like two hours. I'm so excited. So your home practice isn't always going to be this escape, a respite, right? a retreat for your mind and your right. body. Your mind is actually busy right. while you're practicing. Yeah, and that's one of the, th- the, you're hitting on something that I want to make sure that from my experience, I make clear with this, which is that as a yoga practitioner, your relationship, your dynamic, your enthusiasm, your passion is going to take on many different phases uh, and many different faces over the years. And so you just have to know going in that the way you feel about something at the beginning of a relationship isn't necessarily how you're going to feel about that thing 20 years into a relationship, 40 years into a relationship, not on the surface, but deep down below, you should be, for me personally, I have a stronger, deeper, more committed relationship to yoga, as strong of a relationship as I ever have. But on the surface, the intensity of it has changed. Okay. Say more about that. Okay. So my practice now feels more fully and deeply ingrained than it ever has. And at the same time, it's not... On any given day, I'm not learning new things at the pace that I used to learn new things. Mm. I am not developing new poses at the pace that I used to develop new poses. I am not as carried by growth and advancement and raw passion of newness than I once was. Because the learning curve and the depth of what my body can do has flattened out a little bit over time, right? There's a natural curve, there's a natural arc. And yet at the same time, underneath that, I don't want to say surface as in something negative, but underneath that, that sort of daily drive to do new or different or creative or advanced things, I know that my practices just it's just become part of who I am it's just deeply baked into who I am and how I see the world and how I see myself and how I see others and actually how I do other physical disciplines that the practice is baked in but on any given day the practice my practice isn't necessarily as exciting as it was at a certain phase of my life right So it's not just that the practice changes when you become a teacher. It's that the practice, of course, we've talked about this before, but, you know, the practice changes with you as you grow older, as you age. Yeah. It supports you in different ways. Yeah. My practice is matured. It's now like a mature, ongoing relationship, but it doesn't have that total excitement or total freshness Mm -hmm. of my first several years of having a consistent practice Mm -hmm. just because the growth curve has changed sure it's gotten more subtle it's gotten more detailed but my ability to pick up and learn a new pose over the course of a week is different than it used to be right 
And also your needs are different. And my needs are different. Exactly. I don't need it. I don't need it to be that way. Yeah. 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 So going back to kind of the beginning of the conversation, um, when you do a teacher training and you talk to people about a home practice, how do you, if, if they are in that place that you were all those years ago where, you know, they don't know where to begin, how do you advise them? Like, what are some of the early steps? Well, I think here's, here's to me, this is the first most important, which is that if you are developing a home practice or if you're inconsistent in your home practice, or you're at that phase where you really want to commit to a home practice, but it isn't quite taking. To me, the first thing to do is to not try to replicate the experience of a yoga class on your own at home. Like to me, this is the biggest mistake that people make. And it's not only the biggest mistake, but it's also the most common mistake is people's expectation of their own home practice is to replicate the intensity and the feel and the, I don't know, the sort of uh, separation is not the right word, but the intensity, the feel, the tone, the pace, the, pace, the overall oh. experience of a led public class. And that's really hard to do at home. It's, I don't think it's a practical thing. I think that what we have to do is we have to we have to adapt the yoga practice for the context. And when you go to a group class, you have someone else whose energy you're feeding off of. You have a group dynamic whose energy you're feeding off of. You don't have the same distractions that you might have at home. You can't as easily, if you get distracted or frustrated or annoyed or bored, you can't as easily just pick up and walk over and walk off the mat. And so when you're at home, to me, it's, it's the difference of going to a restaurant and being fed, you know, like a wonderful three, four, five plate meal. When you go home and do a practice, you just need to figure out something that is nourishing, something that is doable, something that is repeatable. So a duration, you know, maybe a 45 minute practice or a 60 minute practice a duration that you can commit to on an ongoing basis. <laughs> and then also an intensity that is scalable, an intensity that you can recreate on your own because consistency is king. So you want to stay consistent, which means you need a duration and you need an intensity that you're not overreaching for, that you can actually return to and be very consistent with. Mm -hmm. And then I think that the, the next big tip that I would say, and I think so often, I mean, I, I admit to being a con contrarian for better or worse, but I've heard this phrase that I'm going to say a lot. I've heard this phrase that I've, I'm about to say, I've heard it many times, which is you should be practicing the things that are difficult for you. You should be practicing the things that are difficult for you. I think this is the most ridiculous advice that you could possibly give to anyone ever. 
Like to me, it's this really weird platitude that doesn't actually bear out in reality. I think that the biggest, most important launching point for developing a home practice is doing the opposite. It's to doing the stuff that you love, mm-hmm. doing the stuff that you feel good, doing the stuff that you look forward to. Yeah. Most people don't have that much free time. And you're not, you're only gonna do the things you don't like for a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Once you have a fully vetted, established, ongoing yoga practice, then of course, do the things that you push your buttons, that give you some resistance. It'd be like if I had never cooked at home and I wanted to learn how to cook at home and I decided that I was going to learn to cook the things that I don't actually enjoy eating, but I think might be good for me. Well, I'll tell you what it reminds me of, actually. It reminds me of the American dieting mentality, Mm -hmm. right? Which is like, you want to be healthy? Don't eat the things that you love. Right. Restrict yourself. It's sort of this, um, it's sort of like a self-punishing Yeah, that's right. It is. You know? Yoga has a history in asceticism. I mean, we can be honest about that. There's right. plenty of historical self-flagellation, but that's not that's not the way the vast majority of modern practitioners, thank God, see this. And so if you know that you love hip openers, if you know that you love shoulder openers, if you know that you love twists, and then start there. Emphasize that work. Right. I mean, I think I think when you bring up asceticism, I mean what it makes me think of is there is a place. I believe uh, there's an important place in this practice for discipline. And so perhaps people think like I'm disciplining myself by working on really hard things. But I think what you're saying is the discipline can come from the consistency. It has to come from the consistency. (laughs) You can't have a hard will discipline doing things you don't want to do when you don't have to do them and you have limited time. Mm -hmm. No one does that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just not, it's not realistic. It's not a realistic thing. It's not even basic human psychology. Mm-hmm. So I, of course, am not saying that we should avoid things that are difficult. I'm saying if you're trying to launch and be consistent with a home practice that soothes you and feeds you and inspires you, then start with the stuff that you resonate with. Mm-hmm. Like if you love poses, you love them for a reason. You know, you love them for many reasons. and it's not bad for you to love hip openers and do hip openers or love shoulder openers and do shoulder openers. And if that's what gets you to the mat and that's what makes you look forward to things and that's what makes you feel motivated and inspired, then that's what you should stick with. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that came to mind that's interesting to me is how you said that, you know, don't think of right off the bat that your home practice has to be replicating a group class. And the reason I think that's interesting is that for people listening who are thinking, okay, I'm becoming a teacher, I'm going to start my training. So I'm doing my home practice to help me with my teaching. So I should probably practice teaching my class in my home practice. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that that's that's not necessarily the approach. I'm saying, so I started the conversation earlier saying things change, right? And practice changes. I think... We can, we can break this down. We can probably break it down in many ways, but let's break it down for sort of two, I don't want to say levels, but two different types of experiences as practitioners and teachers. If you're on the early curve of being a yoga teacher, if you're in the first couple of years of being a yoga teacher and 
you're still feeling really inspired and connected and sort of ambitious in the, the ways that we can ambitious and not ambitious. Like I want to make a million dollars, but ambitious and like, I really want to teach good classes. I want to be good at this. I want to be focused. I want to develop myself. I want to develop a student base. I want to communicate with and connect to people. If you're on those earlier phases that I think it pays to make your personal practice and your classes similar, mm. very similar. Because I think that your home practice is then the place where you sort out the sequence. It's where you sort out the details. It's where you put pieces of the puzzle together. And it's where you both get your own practice in, but where you get to do the research and development. You know, And I know a lot of, including myself, most new teachers were better at practicing than teaching. When we're new to teaching, we're better at practicing than teaching. So use your practice to inform your class, to develop your class. Next phase, you've been practicing for a long period of time, you've been teaching for a long period of time, and you're dealing with burnout. For me as a yoga teacher, this is one of the places I'm very inspired to work is with existing yoga teachers who are a bit burned out. And that's most of them. That's most teachers who have been practicing and teaching for a period of time just like any other phase, just like any other career. And I've gone through several different phases of burnout as a practitioner and as a teacher. And I think that if you are teaching a ton of classes, if you are mentally and emotionally burned out, if you're at a place right now where you feel like you are hustling from place to place to place to place to place, you're a good teacher, you're good at what you do, but you you're just burnt out and you feel disconnected to your own practice, then at that phase, I think you switch it a little bit. At that phase, you start to say, okay, you know what? I might need to actually practice for a period of time in a way that's very, very different than my classes so that I feel like I get a little bit of an escape again, so that I feel like I get a little relief. Because if you're running around constantly and you feel like you've been running around for a long period of time, and you're teaching, you know, 20 classes and privates and trying to do this and that, and you're doing social media, then you need some way of engaging with your physicality that is different. And if you try to make your yoga practice exactly like every other aspect of your teaching life, then it's just going to contribute to burnout. Yeah, that's really smart. You know, it's just going to contribute to burnout. And so if you're a vinyasa yoga teacher and you're burned out, you're hustling around, then take some Iyengar classes mm. or do some Iyengar stuff at home or do some yin or, you know, explore, even start to maybe involve other physical disciplines just so that you stay involved and inspired and embodied but you get that escape mm -hmm. or a little bit of an escape instead of trying to make everything feel like the same thing yeah well two things do you ever give people home practice sequences that they can start from when they're in your teacher trainings and then that they can teach you know i was talking to another teacher who told me that some modern teacher trainings and she didn't think this was a great idea 
we'll just give people like five sequences to start teaching. And then boom, you go into a class and you're, you've just got these like five templates of yeah. sequences in your back pocket. I used to be really averse to that. And now I see how sensible it is. Hmm. And if I can be really, really honest and look back at my experience, the first discipline, the first type of yoga that I taught was what? It was Ashtanga Yoga. Mm -hmm. It's a primary series. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing. I spent maybe three years, four years, the first, I don't know. I don't know. I'm terrible with dates. But the first two to four years of my teaching, I taught the same sequence every time I taught. Mm -hmm. And that was really good for me because I can look back and I didn't have to think about sequencing. I didn't have to try to reinvent the wheel. I didn't have to try to be authentic or different and start putting stuff together that made no sense. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's part of the, the biggest problem of the modern vinyasa yoga era is everyone is trying to do sequences that are different, but for the pure virtue that they're different. Mm -hmm. They're trying to put flows together that are different, but they don't make any sense. I mean, sometimes it makes sense, but... Right. You're saying like sometimes people are so focused on creativity that the logic of sequencing is lost. That's right. And knowing what sequence I was going to teach for the first couple of years freed me up mm -hmm. to see bodies, to focus on cueing, to give adjustments, to help myself feel comfortable in the room because I didn't have to deal with that sequencing. And so I've actually gone full circle into thinking that for newer teachers, that having a more structured, fixed, templated sequence to work with is really good. In fact, in my, in my online sequencing program, we do a lot of that. I want both mm -hmm. because I don't want the artistry to be lost. And, and so I think that one of the problems, one of the concerns that I have and other teachers have is if you are just teaching a sequence, then you aren't learning anything about sequencing. Right. You're just creating someone else's recipe and no chef wants to live forever just cooking someone else's recipe, man. Mm -hmm. No one does. That's not a chef's job, you know, but I think that that's a, it's an, it's a good early phase, but so long as you are also knowing that that is an early phase of teaching and that you are being taught the concepts of developing your own content. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my, my, my sequencing, both when I teach live and when I do my online sequencing program, and then even just our website, like all the sequences that we have on our website, right? Mm -hmm. Those are set sequences. And I would love for those to do two things. I would love for those to be specific sequences that people learn to practice and learn to teach as is. And then also examples of good recipes, good formulas, good templates, so that people can learn the concepts of good sequencing for their own practice and teaching, and then find their own voice, apply their own and develop their own content. It's not, these aren't mutually exclusive. They're different stages of the same thing. Right. So that would also be a way if you were developing a home practice to start is to take a templated sequence and like the one, one of the ones that we have on our website yeah, and then play around with it. Play around with it. Absolutely. With it. You know, and, yeah. and again, it's like, it is to me again, I keep bringing it up, but it's like learning to cook. You know, if I don't, if I have no idea how to make pumpkin soup, right. I'm going to use a recipe. 
And then the 30th time I make pumpkin soup, I'm going to have abandoned that recipe. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have taken the essence of it and then I'm going to play with it my own. Right. You know, and it's not, it's not just about making it my own. It's about learning the subject matter well enough to adapt those principles to a different environment. Mm. You know, and I think that that's the key to whether it's for your own home practice or teaching or both. So you want to learn good sequencing, but you have to learn the concepts that underscore so that you can adapt to varying situations. Right. The building blocks. It's a building block. Like the building blocks of a good recipe. You know, there's a balance of fat and acid and salt and sweet. So. And early on, I remember, I literally remember making pumpkin soup (laughs) (laughs) and reading this recipe saying salt to taste. And I'm like, I have no, what is that? Yeah. How, where do I start? Is that a cup of salt? <laughs> is that like two granules of salt? So early on, I needed to be told exactly sure. how much salt. Now I don't need to be taught exactly how much salt. Mm-hmm. And, but these aren't mutually exclusive. So, so going all the way back to the beginning of this part of the conversation, this is where having templated set sequences, both to teach, but also for your own practice. and developing your own these are not separate things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. these are they need each other they're in relationship to each other cool and i didn't see that for a very long period of time Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so you could go to our site Mm -hmm. we have tons of sequences on it most of them are peak pose sequences not all of them are peak pose sequences and that would be a really good way to start because it's sort of like a, a real kernel that you could work with 12 poses, 16 poses. And then as you work on that, you make it your own. You know, you do, maybe it's Bakhasana, and then you're done with the Bakhasana sequence we do, and you think to yourself, oh, I needed a little bit more core, or I needed a little bit more shoulder, I needed a little bit more upper back opening, or I needed a little bit more repetition. And that's then where you learn to drive, you learn to cook, you learn to develop your own content. And the thing is to me is that's where we become really proficient, authentic yoga teachers is when we can do that in our own experience of practice. If we can do that in our own experience of practice, that's how and when and where we inspire our own, our classes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So good luck with your teaching. Good luck with your practicing, everyone. (laughs) Stay committed to it. It's worth it. Thanks, Jason. You're welcome. Hey everyone, just a few quick notes before I sign off. Since Jason mentioned our online illustrated sequences that are on our blog, I am going to put links to all of them on our show notes page. I can't remember how many we have right now, but we have something like 20 sequences and it'll be easiest if I put them all on the show notes page instead of you having to go back through the blog. So you can find links to those sequences at jasonyoga.com slash podcast slash episode 14. I'll also put a link to his online sequencing course that he mentioned. And and as he said, you know, there are tons of valuable sequencing templates and ideas that he provides in that course. And I will put a list of books that Jason loves for sequencing inspiration. And finally, if you are a teacher and you want to do some advanced training with Jason, he just announced his 
2017 teacher training dates in San Francisco. So you can find information about that on our website. If you go to jasonyoga.com and you navigate to workshops and trainings, 500 hour teacher training, it's split up into three modules. It's incredibly manageable and it's fantastic. So until next week, enjoy your practice. Just how I can feel